jazz To make the most of our time So that we may grow In wisdom Teach us To make the most of our time So that we may grow In wisdom To satisfy Greetings. Welcome to Two Days Denarius. I'm Ron Thomas. Well, if you've seen any of my YouTube videos in recent times, you can see that there has been a whirlwind of activities, and really not so good ones, uh, in the Christian world. It is getting very concerning out there. Um, I really diverted from my normal pattern of Two Days Denarius, uh, which is to present uh, encouraging Bible-focused uh, lessons uh, to help people grow. But, you know, Jude wrote a book, uh, the one right before Revelation, and Jude was Jesus' brother, and he was wanting to write about what he called uh, the common salvation. And when he addressed that, he said, you know, there was so much false teaching going around in the church at that time that he had to change his uh, reason for writing, and instead he addressed false teachers. Well, we're kind of in that time right now because it seems like uh, there's a lot of bad things happening uh, with these falling away, uh, uh, fashionable falling aways that have been happening in recent times and people using a new fashionable word called deconstruction. Deconstruction and apostasy are really synonyms. Um, you know, we always want to address things that are not so good in fanciful language make them sound a little more palatable. And really, that's what's going on here, because tell you the truth, the Bible knows nothing about this thing called deconstruction of your faith. And if it was something really good, sound and spiritual, like real spiritual examination, as it is promoted in Scripture, uh, you wouldn't see so many people falling away. So it really is a selfish pattern, self-centered pattern of a person looking inside themselves and Really, in the end, they're just trying to uh, find a, uh, an excuse to separate from their churches and separate from their so-called faith that they probably never really had. Um, yep, I take a hard view on that. I take a biblical view on that uh, because there is nothing Christian about it. And I would encourage you to go watch uh, my YouTube videos because it is something uh, that you need to be educated about. Uh, the apostasies that have happened with numerous names, uh, popular names uh, within uh, the evangelical Christian faith um, has been pretty stunning over the last couple of years. And so much of that's happening uh, at a speed almost of sound. And along with the other events of the world, they're making you wonder, and I do believe this in accordance with the uh, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, um, that the one of the very last signs before Jesus returns is going to be the great falling away, the great apostasy or the great rebellion. And uh, that's what we're, we're, uh, we're seeing now. So I do want to say that, you know, recently I've been away um, mostly because I've been building the YouTube channel up. Well, I'm not as up to as many subscribers as I would like at this time, but I keep working at it. Uh, I want to make more podcasts too, but 
doing both and my main vocation uh, is a chaplaincy ministry I, I have to certainly put that first uh, but this is I, what I do as a labor of love as I, what I call it or some may call it a hobby um, but I do enjoy doing the podcast too podcasts are actually easier to produce but I have gotten better uh, with my YouTube videos so now with my camera and stuff I am I'm much faster and I'm able uh, to produce the videos and I found a way to sidestep one big one that was taking a lot of time um, and actually can free me up to do a little bit more um, on the podcasting side. Uh, always working to upgrade. Want to make these better for you. I do hope that you are growing by them. And I do want to always thank those. Uh, if you subscribe out there or whatever, uh, whatever podcast app you listen on. This is available on nine different podcast sites. So the main ones, of course, being Spotify, Apple, uh, Google, um, among other ones like Breaker and Overcast, Pocket Cast. Stitcher is actually an ex excellent app. Uh, if you're not on Stitcher, you could probably give that one a try. I'd recommend it. Uh, Pocket Cast, CastBox. I can go down the list, um, but you can find two days denarius there. I will say for the YouTube channel, um, I have the second part of deconstructing deconstructionism uh, that will be released um, on Tuesday. Tuesday of this week, which I believe is May 25th, 2021. So having said that, I want to go ahead and move into the title of tonight's lesson, which is really, uh, it's thoughts on the Lord's Supper. And it's concerned me lately because of what I've seen in churches uh, in recent times. So I really want to just start out telling a, an illustration of my experience when I was a young boy uh, with the Lord's Supper and handling it the wrong way. <laughs> we were in the Presbyterian Church when I was a kid, and um, you know there were times with the plate and the juice, and I think they had wine and they had grape juice in them. I can't remember. I was so young then. This was probably or before the time I was around 10 years old. Um, but normally we were quiet, reverent, and my mom would always make sure we were. Uh, this was... Uh, Presbyterian churches are generally more liturgical type or a little more formal type and this church in particular definitely was um, the pastor Reverend McDonald's boy he was guarded up he's one of the reasons why I wanted to become a minister when I was a kid I wanted to be like Reverend McDonald and he looked so awesome in his in his gown and um, I can't remember a single sermon he ever preached but I do know they had a wonderful choir there and uh, the church was pretty full, but that church now is, is, if not by now, I was so saddened to see that it closed down. And it's a historic church in the suburb of Detroit, and uh, it's, it's coming down. And it breaks my heart, just shows the changes in our society that people, uh, we have not passed the faith on very well as Christians. We have not passed it on very well at all. And it's our fault. That's on us. Why have our children not taken the faith? of the generation, of this current generation, those who have raised them. Um, it, it's a very sad thing. We have to blame only ourselves. Uh, we really do. We did not do our job, those of us Christians. Uh, we have to admit that. But back to the Lord's Supper. Um, on this particular day, my brother, oldest brother, um, I was following his lead, but don't, you know what? There's no excuse for that. Um, and I was following his lead and 
um, we were goofing around, almost kind of, not so much of a mocking fashion, but it was wrong what we were doing. And thankfully, my mom put kind of put the eyeballs on us and uh, put a stop to us, stop to it. But she really, um, really kind of laid into me when we got home that day. I don't know how I remember, so I remember it clearly in my mind, even though I was probably around eight or nine years old when this happened. But, you know, even at that time, I never really knew how serious the Lord's Supper was. I, I never really knew until after coming to faith in Christ and uh, in my mid-teens when I started reading my Bible year by year, I came across uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, starting at uh, verse 23, or actually above that, um, where the Apostle Paul started addressing uh, the Corinthians about how about their handling of the Lord's Supper and what happened to some, some of them and how the Lord made some sick and how the Lord even took some home um, because of the mockery they made of the Lord's Supper. So, you know, I, I really took it to heart, the serious nature of this. And I always think sometimes... In my heart, I say to myself, is my heart truly right to take the Lord's Supper? Um, I really uh, had to consider that and always make sure that I was doing and taking the Lord's Supper with the right heart, in the right manner, uh, in a way that would be pleasing to him, and making sure that the uh, horizontal relationship with others and the vertical relationship with the Lord uh, was right. Communion is about both of those. It is a body thing in two ways. It's uh, Christ's body and about the body of the church as we work together in what's called communion. And we should have that fellowship with uh, one another. The blessed be the tie that binds fellowship. And I'm going to talk more about that song in a second. I'm not going to give the words to it so much, but I'll tell what one church did. Um, with that particular hymn, one hymn, another one, unfortunately, that we never hear nor sing anymore. Now, I'll tell you what churches used to do. You know, I'm going to say uh, from the time I remember when I was a child, and, you know, we have two ordinances. Uh, our churches as Protestants, Protestant faith, or uh, some faith groups existed, outside the Catholic realm before the Reformation. I, I know Catholics like to give the oppression. If you're Catholic out here, I'm not saying this to offend you at all. I encourage you to keep listening, but I will say that there were faith groups all around outside the Roman Catholic Church, and, and they observed uh, things like communion. They did baptisms and stuff. Um, the church is always referring to people. The word ecclesia, it's translated for church. It's referring to an assembly. It's referring to people, not so much uh, church as an institution. The body of Christ is people. You're not going to see buildings. You're not going to see the Southern Baptist building uh, raptured to heaven. You're not going to see St. Peter's where, where the Pope is. That will not be raptured to heaven. Only people will be. So one of the things we have to get straight is you know, churches don't take communion. Uh, you know, the buildings, the structures, <laughs> people do. They don't get baptized. We may dedicate them, but 
let, I know I'm being a little absurd at the moment, but the fact of the matter is, it's about people and how we handle communion is about people. So one of the things we used to do, and it's sad uh, these days, and you know what, if your church does this and, and some of these things, if not all, amen, I praise the Lord for that. But what we did um, when I was younger, uh, we took time to pause for people to look into their hearts, to ensure that things were right with the Lord, um, pray, reflect. Uh, and one of the things, you know, we want to make sure our spirits are right before we partake of communion. But another thing, and I haven't seen this at all in recent years. In fact, I have seen, I have uh, not seen this pause take place in recent years at all. And that's sad. We just pray and go straight into it. But the other thing we were encouraged to do in conjunction with uh, the pause for prayer, that if we had something against our brother, if there was conflict between a brother or sister, two brothers or two sisters in Christ, we were to take time to go to them and renew our fellowship, ask forgiveness of each other. So our hearts again could be right uh, to take communion communion and and that's the important thing about the horizontal relationship our horizontal relationship with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ ought to be right before we take communion and you're going to hear more upon up on that here in a little bit another thing is that serious well thought out prayers were given before we took communion uh, communion as well in fact, the prayers were good, and the reason I say that is none of them took away the mystery of communion, and and there is a mystery, and then I will talk about that here in a little bit, but the prayers were truly focused on the body, the blood, and Christ, what we were doing at that time, and, and there was a sacredness to the moment, um, a sacredness that we often, as evangelicals, give to baptism, but we seem to have really taken away. Uh, from communion. Now, I'm not one, if you know about Francis Chan, the former uh, megachurch pastor, he's kind of become a semi-evangelist. I'm not sure what he's uh, doing so much. Uh, but he made a video just talking about oh, how we all need to get together with all faiths. And uh, basically, the Roman Catholic Church has it all right. And 1,500 years, they had fellowship. Well, he said all that without even any knowledge of church history. It hasn't been all sweet and all fellowship, even within the Catholic institution for 1,500 years. That was completely untrue. I would encourage you to watch James White, Reverend James White. Uh, he did a YouTube video. It's called Dividing Line, I believe, and uh, talked about that uh, Francis Chan video, and he really debunked it because James White's a historian. He knows <laughs> Uh, what has happened in church history in a better way than I do, but I, even though I, uh, I, I knew that. Um, I didn't even have to hear James White about that to know that there has been, uh, because of our imperfectness, okay? I mean, we're not, <laughs> there's no perfect institution out there. And, and for him to say what he said and pleading, almost like he was drooling, uh, I'm sorry, Francis, you got to get your history right. You know, you've done a couple of things that have upset Christians, evangelicals in particular, 
one of them was this, but you said these things uh, based on, not based on historical fact. Your conclusions were false. Um, in addition, you even admitted in one video that I saw that uh, you were going to make sure you had more discretion that you got called out for because you weren't being discreet about where you were, uh, what conferences and things like that you were speaking in and who you were speaking with. People who have generally been found to be false teachers and promoting their ministries. Now that's on you as well. So I say that, Francis Chan, that, that's for you to get right. That's for you to fix because for some of the things personally that I have seen, and I say this to those listening, is that Francis Chan, he would almost seem to feel at home in the Roman Catholic Church. They welcome him. But uh, there's reasons why we are not part of the Roman Catholic Church. I have many good, faithful uh, Roman Catholic friends, colleagues that I have worked with um, and worked well with. Um, but there's a reasons why we have differences uh, in our doctrine. And both sides respect that. One of the things we would do after we had communion is the whole congregation that was present, we would get in a big circle and we'd hold hands and sing, blessed uh, be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. And I wish I knew the rest of the song because it's a beautiful song talking about the fellowship here on earth that should be a reflection of heaven. You know, we got to work on getting along. I mean, eternity is a long time. So I say to my brothers and sisters, uh, let's work to make things right with those that we need to make things right with. And why do we sing a hymn? It's appropriate. I always love when we sing a hymn, um, even a, a good, sound, faithful worship song. Because in the book of Mark, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm really sure it was the book of Mark. It says they sang a hymn and afterward went to the Mount of Olives. Um, so let's do the hymn. Let's do the song after we take communion. It's the right thing to do. Let's follow the biblical pattern. Now, what do we do today? I'll just say what some of my biggest concerns are. What We rush right through it. The last church I went to, I went into the building. I saw the trays right inside and I didn't realize I was supposed to pick it up right at the door. Nobody was at the door to tell me <laughs> uh, to take the communion cup. The cup and the bread were one piece. And so I, I missed it. I went and sat down and I didn't realize because it wasn't the first Sunday of the month when the church, this church normally did it. Um, they, did, they were doing it the last week of this particular month. So I didn't realize that um, until it was too late. So when communion time came, um, I walked out to go get it, but the trays were gone. So I went back to my seat and I said, oh, and I was kind of bummed because I wanted to take it. it. It had been a while. So having said that, the communion just flew. It's like, what had just happened? Very short prayers, no reflection time. I was very, very disappointed. I felt like for the first time in my life, I said, I am about thankful that I didn't take it that day. I had no time to reflect on the Lord. None at all. It was a very sad thing. Rushing right through it 
is not a healthy thing. No reflection time, sometimes no prayer, and prayers that are very short and shallow. People, we have to get more serious about our faith. This is what we call a church ordinance, or some call it a sacrament. Given that it's an ordinance, it was a mandate. Jesus said, as often as you drink, drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me, as often. It, it wasn't like foot washing. When he talked about foot washing, he said, I've given this to you as an example. And the example from foot washing is how we need to humble ourselves in service to each other. Uh, that was the foot washing. So that's why we don't, some churches do practice foot washing, and I, I'm certainly all for that. Um, but it's not a requirement. It's not certainly on the level of ordinances slash sacraments that baptism and the Lord's Supper are. Um, I mean, some might argue that, but you got the key word there is example. And if it's an example, it's an idea that we ought to practice. I'll also say here that sometimes we, in a sense, shoot ourselves in the foot. And what I mean by that is we take away the meaning of the Lord's Supper sometimes in, in what we pray. Because what we'll say is um, these elements are just physical elements. There's no meaning behind them. There's no spiritual connection to them and stuff like that. Um, I do have a problem with the way we're doing that because you're taking away the meaning of the thought. Not that people are putting faith in those elements, but I want to say this. We don't treat baptism that way. I have never heard a pastor say, this is just water. There's no, nothing special about the water here when we do baptism. I look at us as Baptists, for instance, and we're so excited to baptize somebody. Well, why aren't we excited about communion? We, we don't ever talk about the meaninglessness of water before we do a baptism. I mean, we look at people not like I was when I was a kid. I, I came out thrilled after I got baptized. My church recently, um, the baptisms that we did, I was they they were great stories. It was so wonderful uh, to hear what happened with these two ladies and how they got saved and that they're moving um, on a great path in their lives. But we don't put down the water. Why not? Why aren't we using the same logic that we do with communion? See, the fact is, if we're going to pray and, and, and take away the meaning of something before we even take it, then why are we doing it? What is our purpose? I think the elements in communion work in the context of a whole, just like water does in baptism. If you're going to say just something is merely symbolic and has no other meaning, then you're doing it as a routine. I am an advocate that we take time to think, reflect, and give people the opportunity to do that and really talk about the meaning of the bread and of the cup. And let's stop doing the part where we're going to say, well, these things really don't have any real 
mystery or anything like that to them. I, 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 I've kind of heard enough of that. And when I hear that, I'm very saddened. Um, I like the thought. I like the mystery. I like the thought that Christ is with us in a special way in a time of communion. I like the fact that we memorialize and remember Christ at that time. And, you know, those particular elements and stuff, um, we have them there for a reason. And part of the difficulty has been church history is to explain their meaning. So what I mean is, let's look at this. When we look at baptism and the Lord's Supper, both of them have to do with the death, burial, and resurrection. Now, the Lord's Supper, not as much the, death, the, the resurrection, but both are definitely involved with, um, with the death and burial of Christ. When we baptize somebody, you know, we can say buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. It's a beautiful picture of the old life or the dead spiritual life that now has new life and a new way to walk in Christ. Now with communion, it's a beautiful time for the Christian to reflect, to look at his or her relationship to Christ, to really in some ways, if there's repentance, um, if there's things that need to be righted with the Lord and with others, communion is the time to do that. But you know, it's a time of remembrance, a memorial to Christ. And why are we doing anything to take away from the meaning of that time? Why in the world are we treating it so lightly? Um, why in the way, to, why are we just putting it just as a routine? I, this is what we're doing when you rush through this. If any pastors are listening to me, listening to me out there, I encourage you to rethink the way you're doing communion. I, rethink, I, I encourage you to put just as much effort into that as you do the baptisms that you perform in your church. I really encourage you to look at that in a way that you emphasize baptism and practice it in all those ways that acknowledge and emphasize the sacred nature of that. You know why? Because there was a church in Corinth that had huge problems with the way they did communion. And I think we can learn a lesson from them because they treated it lightly also, even though they did things differently in a negative way. Uh, but it's still something to look at because we want to look at it here too. And one of the things about communion is you say, well, why do we have these different ways or different views of looking at that? Uh, for instance, the Roman Catholics, uh, we know have transubstantiation, they call it, which means, and their interpretation is that the body and the blood of, of Christ or the bread, the bread and the cup turn into the actual body and blood of Christ. Um, that's been around for centuries. Uh, that's what they believe, and they, they take a literal translation of that. Well, Jesus called himself the bread of life, but, you know, uh, this is true. He called himself the light of the world. Uh, you can look at the many I am of, uh, of Jesus, and is that literally? You know, how is he the light of the world? Well, the light of the world is he's the one and only Savior that came. 
to this world so that to open the door of salvation for you you and me there's a light and there's darkness so there are things again we're talking about imagery here and the roman catholic church decided to, to take that literally um, then there's consubstantiation which uh, martin luther came up with and that is just saying that in a sense uh the elements don't really turn into the uh uh, the wafer and the um, the wafer and the uh, um, I'm sorry the wafer and the juice or the wine don't turn into the actual body uh, and blood of Christ but they come close very close I mean just as close as possible <laughs> so that's kind of how Martin Luther looked at it I generally take the view that there's a spiritual assist the Holy Spirit is there in present, not that there's a change in them and stuff like that. I, I think that there is a mystery, a sacredness to the time of communion, uh, like John Calvin held, uh, that really does hold to the mystery of it and honors it in the way without saying, well, it's just merely symbolic and just, just a couple of elements and no meaning to it. You know, again, I'm not going to get out there and do a baptism and say, there's no meaning to this water. It's just an element, but we're going to dunk him or her anyway. You know, stop doing that, people. Please stop. There is something special about this ordinance or sacrament, what you call it. Call it. There is a mystery to it. But you know what? You pull the rug out of that, out of that when you do some of the things you do. You do. One of the main representative, if not the main representative of the symbolic view, um, that they are symbolic, it's a representation of what Jesus did, uh, was Ulrich Zwingli. Ulrich Zwingli uh, was famous for that. But I can tell you right now, Zwingli, I assuredly tell you that he treated those elements in a very spiritual and holy way. In fact, they all did in that time. You know, one of the sad things, I'll give you a history example here, was that um, Zwingli um, believed this. And Martin Luther was so much against Zwingli that in the battle against the Roman Catholics, uh, at the time of Zwingli's death, Martin Luther and the Protestants would not come and help Zwingli over his view on the Lord's Supper. I do believe I read that at one time. Well... Hence, it was very, very important this topic was in the time of the Reformation. But the question always remains, what does the Bible say? So let's look at that now. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three 23-34, Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he gave him thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the ideas of remembrance is a reminder. It is a memorial of me. No, we visit memorials, historic memorials, and we reflect on what took place there. Or we can look at statues of great heroes and we, we, we reflect on what they did. You know, as simple as grave markers. Those are memorials. We go visit our families. We reflect on what they meant to us, how special they were. Well, when we do this, 
we're doing a memorial in remembrance of our Lord, a reminder of what he did. We sit there, we sit in our pew and we reflect, reflect on that and the meaning of it and our relationship with him. And again, our relationship with others as well. How are we doing with that? Then it says in the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant. Covenant, And the idea of that new covenant, covenant is a last will or a testament. It's a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And I, I believe it's up to a church how, much, how often it decides. Because it says as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And periodicity, some churches do it weekly. Some churches do it monthly. And sadly, some churches sometimes don't do it at all. Or maybe once a year. I think we need to be reminded more than that. If you're a pastor listening and you're only doing this once a year, I'm sorry, you need to be doing it more. This is one of two ordinances that Christ gave the church to practice. We need to be doing it much better justice than that. And I know because I grew up in a church that was doing it once or twice a year. No, we got to do better than that. Um, it has to be some type of periodicity to it. And I, I just don't believe in my heart it should be on one person's whim. That's my belief. I think pastor and the church deacons ought to get together and with input of a congregation and decide upon a periodicity when you're going to practice the, the ordinance of communion. Um, in the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant. Once again, last will and testament in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance or as a memorial of me. Now here's the test. Here's what we do. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a testimony of ours to the world. Yeah, that's a great thing. I have no problem with that. Um, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. Now in the early church, tell you what, uh, the Roman community was very aware of this because Christians got charged as being can with uh, being cannibals because of communion <laughs> over this teaching, claiming the, the literal body and blood, and um, it caused a lot of confusion. One of the reasons probably why it took a long time for it be to become a legal religion. So, But we know in that sense they certainly were not, and that's never been in history. Um you know, the enemies of the church at that time, it's like we have enemies now, are always going to make false claims uh, like that, that to their own advantage. Okay, so let's move on here. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and this is where the important part, like I said, when I was a child and read this, I got a little scared. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy or careless, improper manner will be held guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. You know, that's talking about taking this in a careless or improper manner. Our hearts need to be totally focused on the Lord when we take this cup. Or during the time of communion, let us give our hearts and our attention totally to the things of the Lord. Otherwise, we, we can't take this ordinance. 
We can't take this time of a special relationship with the Lord and just, you know, blow by it as fast as we can or rush it. We aren't doing this right if we do. I mean, think about the warning here. This is serious stuff. And that's why Paul said in verse 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let a person examine himself in this way, and this is talking about females too, and let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. And that means you're going to put to test. You're going to determine your genuine, genuineness. That's why we need that time of reflection before we take the Lord's Supper. We need that time to reflect upon him and make sure that our hearts are right with the Lord and with others before we take communion. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And one of the notes I read from my study Bible, it says the phrase, whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body is a solemn wordplay on the body, on the word body. Believers are to recognize that Jesus selflessly sacrificed his body for others and that this sacrifice was designed to make Christians a selfless corporate body. I told you about horizontal and vertical relationship. We have to do this right. You know, and Paul further wrote, he said, this is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. Now that's a euphemism. That falling, falling asleep is the same euphemism that was used of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 uh, when he was stoned, uh, you know, killed, um, and when Paul was watching over the garments. Uh, it's a euphemism uh, for death. Now, this was important because it says, if we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. That's why we need time of examination. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. The Lord had to discipline the people at the Corinthian church so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he or she should eat at home. The problem what was happening in the Corinthian church, if you go to the verses above uh, where I started, Paul said, I do not praise you because of things that are happening in the way you're doing communion. Uh, people were bringing their own food. There were divisions among them. Horizontal relationships were bad. Um, and Paul even got to the point of saying, some of you are even getting drunk. And this is all in the context of communion, of the Lord's Supper. And Paul isn't going to praise them for that. Paul said, because of what you're doing here, you, you were brought under judgment. And so Paul wrote the pattern for them. Uh, to make sure that they corrected uh, the way that they were taking communion. You know, I have an index card. And on that index card, I always use it and read it. And actually, you don't can't see me, but I am holding it in my hand right now. And you can certainly hear me you know, shaking it a little bit. But this index card of mine is important because whenever I administer communion, um, I always read the five points on this card so people understand whether or not they should actually partake. I make sure they understand that we do this in remembrance. It is a memorial to Christ. It is about his finished work. I make sure they understand the memorial aspect 
of what Jesus did uh, for us. And there's really no timeline to do it as, as often as we drink it. Um, but, you know, most churches, I do believe, have a monthly periodicity on, uh, on partaking in communion, and that's very appropriate. Uh, sometimes, in a way, the Corinthians um, probably started outright in the way they were doing it, but all of a sudden they got caught up and, and started doing everything wrong, and certainly they had a host of things uh, that went wrong in that particular church. Uh, three, I say it's a proclamation, and I talked to you about that a little bit, uh, it points back to the death of Christ. And we're testifying to the world about what Jesus did, um, what he did on the cross and what he did for us. Uh, there's a spiritual benefit to us. It, some call it a means of grace. Um, they say that's associated with it. Like I said, I, I, I generally take John Calvin's, in a sense, a spiritual assist that we don't know, we don't understand, but somehow the Holy Spirit is there uh, with us not necessarily in the elements, that's not what I'm saying, but he's present with us when we do this in a holy and proper way um, to make those times spiritual. And I'll tell you what, I've had moments like that um, where sometimes I've cried, sometimes I just left with a very special renewed relationship with the Lord because the, the, in the context of the church, they took the time to observe it properly. And that makes it far, far more meaningful, the spiritual benefit and then the question comes to who may partake. Now, really, this is a Christian ordinance. And there's various views of this. There's a, a closed communion, which only church members of one particular local New Testament church may partake. I think that's a little bit too tight um, because Christians are Christians wherever we are in the world. And I do believe in what's called close communion. And that means if you are a personal a person of faith, you have a true living, saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I do favor being baptized as well, uh, following the Lord. Um, then you should be able to partake with other Christians in a proper Bible-believing local New Testament church. Key is Bible-believing. Who may partake? Um, you know, it's up to a church. They decide. I mean, they can decide to practice uh, closed communion. And I've been in a church like that uh, when I was young years ago. But my own practice is a close version. And then you have some churches that will open it to everybody. And those that's called open communion. And that includes allowing unbelievers to partake in communion. And um, you can also speak to that of, of those living in sin and stuff. But uh, the biggest problem is unbelievers partaking in a, a Christian ordinance or only meant for Christians by Scripture. Um, that's a dangerous proposition. You can see from reading in 1 Corinthians that spiritually uh, that could cause many, many uh, problems uh, for an individual who's lost uh, to take part in this ordinance. But those are generally have been the three views on it. But I believe, like I said, only one who has a living and active relationship to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those of you who have listened before might recognize this tune. I just kind of felt a little nostalgic tonight. Miss this song. I used to use it at the end of my podcast uh, before teach us to make the most of our time. But I thought I'd go back tonight because, you know, I 
listen to this song. It's called Montauk Breeze and written by Mark Hadley. And it's just kind of a mysterious song. I feel like it has elements of that in it. And so I want to just take a little time to play it tonight as we get ready to close out the show and talking about communion and our special relationship with the Lord. What is yours like? You know, when you take communion, what is on your heart? Are you look deep inside? Do you want your relationship with Christ to grow? Then we have to take time to examine ourselves, to really take that deep dive, look inside. And actually, like David said, search me, O God, and try me and know my heart and see if there's any unrighteous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That's from Psalm 139. Encourage you to take time to do that. This is a blessed, very blessed ordinance. Let's move in the right direction as we do that. Thank you for listening to Today's Denarius. I'm Ron Thomas, and until next time, may God richly bless you.